Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. This morning, I'm going to give my story. I'm going to tell you why I'm in a wheelchair without the two legs that I had for the first 20 uh, years of my life. And in giving my story today, I'm going to talk a little bit about your story as well. Stories are important. I hold in my hand a book that is full of stories of men and women and their lives. It all starts with Adam. You men ever stop to think what it would have been like to have been Adam? Adam had a wife and never had a mother-in-law. That's a story. Adam had a story, and Noah had a story, Abraham had a story, Jacob and Isaac had stories, Joshua had a story, David and Daniel had stories, Shadrach had a story, Samson and Elijah and Jonah and Nehemiah and Stephen and John and Zacchaeus and Peter. In the book of Hebrews, there's a whole chapter we oftentimes refer to as the faith chapter. In that faith chapter, there's one man after the other listed because of their great faith stories. But did you know that right in the middle of all these great men, there's a woman by the, by the name of Rahab. You know what Rahab was? Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a harlot. And yet there comes a day in her life when she too puts her faith and her trust in God. And God thinks so much of her faith that He puts her in the faith chapter. I'm speaking to someone now, and you feel like you've blown it, that you've messed up, that you've shipwrecked, and there's no way for me to have a story. But I've got good news for you today. Two things. Number one, you're in this room right now, and you're breathing air. That means you're alive. And number two, my God is a God of a second chance, and sometimes a third, and sometimes a fourth, as some of us can testify. When you go to the cemetery, there's a, there's a headstone, there's enough information. We know something about the person that is buried in that particular spot. We know their name, of course. And then maybe there's something about their family, maybe a favorite Bible verse, maybe something about their military career. But then there's always the two dates. There's the date that the person was born, and then there's the date that the person died. But ladies and gentlemen, young people, more important than the two dates, in between the two dates is a little dash. And it's what's on your dash that matters the most. What happened from the time that you took your first breath to the moment that you took your last breath, that's your story. What's your testimony today? Revelation chapter 12, and we begin reading in verse, in verse, number, in verse number 7. And there was war, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought 
and his angels, and prevailed not. And neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The question is, how would they overcome this accuser? The one that in verse 9 is referred to as the great dragon, the old serpent, the devil, and Satan. How would they overcome? And a more pertinent question here on October the 1st, 2023, is how will you and I overcome this accuser? There's two ways. And the next verse tells us. Are you ready? Here it is. And they overcame him, we just sang about it, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. I was raised in a pastor's home. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor for almost 60 years. He lacked a, a few months, being six full decades of pastoring and preaching God's Word. Can you imagine that? Sixty years, faithfully. One of the godliest men I've ever known in my life. So my mom died after my dad. My mom was a pastor's wife for almost 60 years. One of the godliest women I've ever known in my life. My mom was a strong woman. She probably didn't weigh 110, 115 pounds soaking wet, but when she was 91 years old, she was still mowing her yard with a push mower. I'm not talking about the kind you push the handle down and it takes off. I'm talking about a push mower. She called me one day and she said, Tim, I, I, sold, I sold my car. I was shocked because she drove herself everywhere. She was a good driver. And, and I said, Mom, why did you sell your car? She said, well, Tim, I'm 91 years old. I've never had an accident and I've never had a ticket and I want to go out on top. <laughs> I couldn't say that when I was 17 years old. There were five of us children, my older sister, me, and my three younger brothers. We didn't live in a perfect home, but it was a great home. But do you know what you do when you're raised in a preacher's home? You go to church. You go to church all the time. I told a group of young people the other day I was on drugs whenever I was nine years old. Mom and Dad drug us to church on Sunday morning, and they drug us back Sunday night. We went to Sunday school, we went to church, we went to revivals, we went to vacation Bible schools. We went, every time the doors were open, we went to church. And you want to know something, parents? That didn't hurt us one bit. As a matter of fact, it was a good thing. It's a good thing to take your children to church. It's a good thing to raise your children in church. 
They need to be in church. Satan, you know what's going on in our society today. You know what's happening in America today. The devil is after your children. And I want to say something to the young adult parents here today. They're not so much even after your teenagers today. They're after your little children. They're after your little six-year-olds, your little seven-year-olds, your little eight- and nine-year-old children. They want your children at any cost, at any price. And that's why it's important that we give the Lord more than just an hour, hour and a half on Sunday morning. That we be here when the doors are open. I notice there's a lot of young adult parents here today. I, I was looking at a verse before I came out of the, the room this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is for the young adult parents. Are you ready for this? In verse number 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And verse number 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou settest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. What are you talking about? The Word of God. When are you talking about it? When you sit down, when you rise up, when you go by the way. And who are you talking about it to? To your children. Hey, as important it is for your children to be in Sunday school, uh, to be in a WANA program, or, or to be even in a Christian academy, all of that's great, and all that's wonderful. But listen to this. It's not their primary responsibility to teach your children the Bible. It is your responsibility to teach your children the Word of God. And that's the kind of home that I was raised in. I was taught a lot of things at church. But I was taught a lot of things at home by my mom and my dad. Parents, it's important that you invest in your children, that you, that you put your uh, uh, life into your children, the Word of God and prayer and taking them to the house of God and, and make it. You've only got them for a few short years of your life that you invest in their life while they're young. When I was only 10, I was 10 years old, North City Baptist Church, Southern Illinois, on Sunday morning in January. Now, you've got to remember, I've already been going to church since nine months before I was born, so I've already heard a lot of Sunday school lessons and a lot of messages, and I've been taught a lot of things at home. But this morning was different. On that morning, I was sitting on the second row on the right-hand side, and that morning I got under conviction. I don't know if you understand conviction or not, but the best way I can explain it in just a sentence or so, it's when God Himself comes to you personally and begins to talk to you personally about big stuff like life and death and heaven and hell and eternity. And man, when conviction comes to you, especially in a setting like we're in right now, if conviction was to come to you today while I'm speaking, you'll probably be the most miserable person in the room. You would like for the preacher just to shut up. No more singing. Somebody get me out of here. But friend, if conviction does come to you today, do you know what you ought to do? You ought to thank God for it. You know what it means? It means this one true and holy God loves you. It means this one true and holy God wants to have a personal relationship with you. 
It means He wants to come into your life. It means He wants you to spend all of eternity with Him in this beautiful place called heaven. And on a Sunday morning, January, conviction came to a 10-year-old boy. When the invitation started, I was really miserable. All I could see was hell. Someone said, well, you shouldn't get saved just to stay out of hell. Maybe not, but that's not a bad reason to get saved. And I left my seat that morning, and I went and knelt at an altar. My mom came and knelt beside me. As a 10-year-old boy, I repented of my sins and received Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior, and I got born into the family of God. And ladies and gentlemen and young people, I'm here to tell you that is the greatest thing that has ever happened in my life. And if you've been saved, that is the greatest thing that has ever happened in your life. I've got to tell you today that if you've never been saved, if your life has never, ever been changed by the power of God, then your life is incomplete. You might be the richest person in this room. You may have more money than all the rest of us put together. But if you don't know Jesus, then your life is incomplete. You might be the smartest person in this building. You may be the most educated person here today, but if you don't know Jesus, your life is incomplete. You may be the strongest man in this county. You may be the most beautiful woman in this county, but if you don't know Jesus, your life is incomplete. Today, you need Jesus. I was so excited told my family and friends what had happened in my life. But then when I became a teenager, something else happened. It never happened overnight, but rather gradually I started to put things before God. Football, basketball, and baseball, and track and field, these things soon became my gods. And my dad told me many times, Tim, there's nothing wrong with you playing ball unless you put it before God. I didn't want to listen to that. And little by little, putting these things before God in my life, I began to have problems. I began to rebel. I rebelled at school. I rebelled against God. I rebelled against my parents. You say, well, Tim, what did your mom and dad do when you rebelled? They had never read any of Dr. Spock's books on child psychology. They didn't even know who the dude was. He actually believed that if a child was frustrated that whatever it took to get the frustration out, let him do it. If he wanted to pick up a rock and throw it through the window, if that would help him get his frustration out, let him throw the rock through the window. Well, my dad had other ways of getting that frustration out. (laughs) We lived on a farm for a while, and behind the farmhouse was a willow tree. Now, I don't know whether you know what willow trees are good for or not, but you don't get any fruit off of them. They're not even a good shade tree. The only thing they're good for is to get a switch off of. (laughs) The only praying I did back then was for that tree to die. It never did die. (laughs) I'd have to go out and get my own switch, and man, I'd be hurting before I got back because I knew what was about to happen. And they would always, mom and dad, they'd always talk to us before they spanked us. And they'd say something like this, Tim, 
this is going to hurt me a whole lot worse than it's going to hurt you. I thought, isn't that dumb? If you give me that switch, I'll show you who it's going to hurt the worst. I said many times, even before I joined the Marine Corps, that I served under the stars and the stripes. My dad furnished the stripes, I saw the stars. They believed in old-fashioned discipline, but many, many times I would slip out behind their back to do what I wanted to do. I attended a public school. Most of my friends were not saved. Most of their parents were not Christians. And I made up my mind as a teenager that I could live my own life. My junior year in high school, I set records in the long jump and the hurdles, winning ribbons and medals, but all the time getting further and further away from God. He said, Tim, what did God do? God declares in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, He said, as many as I love. Let me say those words one more time. Because it's God saying these words in Revelation 3.19. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Five of my high school friends were killed in car wrecks. Every time I would see one of them in a casket, I knew that it very easily could have been me. And God would speak to me. But I wouldn't listen. I kept running. I kept rebelling. I graduated from high school. I started college in the day, working nights. But in the meantime, my life became one disaster after the other. And I thought that it couldn't get any worse. But it wasn't long until I got fired from my job. I got kicked out of college. Nowhere to go and nothing to do. And again, my life full of confusion. Walking down the street in my hometown, McLeansboro, Illinois, I went by the post office and I noticed a sign. Now, I had seen this sign on other occasions, but it never got my attention like it did this day. On, uh, there was a picture of a young man in a sharp-looking uniform. At the top of the sign, it said, the Marines are, way, are looking for a few good men. I was so full of myself. I was so egotistical. I actually went in and told them that I found what they were looking for. Now, young people, to be real frank with you, I was tired of living at home. I wanted a change. I wanted something different. I was tired of being told what time to go to bed and what time to get out of bed and how to get my hair cut and what I could do and could not do. So I joined the United States Marine Corps. <laughs> it wasn't the most intelligent thing I ever did. They put me on a Greyhound bus, sent me to Paris Island, South Carolina. I got off that bus and stepped out of those yellow footprints, and I met the guy, the guy they called drill instructor. And man, I was there less than 24 hours when I decided I didn't like him, and he didn't like me. But you know the real reason why I didn't like him? He was in authority, and I didn't like authority. I was rebellious toward all authority. But I was soon to discover that no matter where I would ever go in this life, there would always be authority with God being the supreme in all authority. I laid awake nights, many nights, thinking about my life, the shame and the disgrace that I had brought to my dad's ministry, to my own family. My attitude began to change in boot camp. The Marines had some things to help it change. I graduated 
from boot camp with a meritorious promotion. I, from private to private first class, went to ITR, then to engineering school at Camp Lejeune, graduated with a, another meritorious promotion, private first class to Lance Corporal. And then I received my orders that I was to go to South Vietnam. I had three weeks leave. I went home to Southern Illinois and spent those three weeks with mom and dad. On Sunday, before I was to leave on Monday, I went to church with mom and dad, and I honestly, I really thought that that day that I had made things right with God. On Monday, mom and dad drove me to St. Louis, and that plane no more got off the runway. And I basically told God that I couldn't do it. Those men were Marines. I was afraid they'd laugh at me. I was afraid they'd make fun of me. I went to Vietnam, was there for nine months. And I didn't go back to doing a lot of the things that I had done before, but friend, listen to me. If you're not for the Lord, then you're against Him. For the believer, for the Christian in this room today, there is no middle ground. Today you're either helping the cause of Christ or you're hurting the cause of Christ. I had opportunity after opportunity to live for God. Mom sent me a Bible. In the front of that Bible, she wrote me several notes and quoted several passages of Scripture that she hand wrote out. And then the last thing she said to me, she said, Tim, this Bible can keep you from sin, or sin can keep you from this Bible. I put it in the bottom of my footlocker. I had no prayer life. I had no testimony. It was a black Marine in my squad by the name of Lee Gore. Lee and I flew to Nam on the same plane. We were the best of friends. He was a Christian living for God. I was saved, but I was running from God. Many times I watched as he sat down the edge of his rack and read his Bible, openly witnessed and talked and prayed with other Marines. And I knew this was the life. I knew this was the story. I knew this was the testimony that I was supposed to have. But I wouldn't do it. I kept running. 30 days left in Vietnam, and my top sergeant offered me a desk job. A desk job was coveted. Marines that were short timers and getting ready to go back home, they were looking for a desk job. It meant you probably wouldn't have to go back out to the field, to the bush anymore. That was where the primary danger was. But for some reason, I told my top that I'd rather spend the rest of my time with my own men. I was told to take them on a minesweep. I'd been on a lot of minesweeps. The only thing particularly different about this one was that some of my men were fairly new in Vietnam. Some of them had only been there a few weeks, and there were a couple just a few days. I remember how it was when I went on my first minesweep. It's a lot different than walking uh, walk an actual minesweep than the training that we got in Camp Lejeune. So I got my men together early that morning, March the 8th, 1971. I told my men that day that I would walk point man. Point man was the first man in the squad. There'd be 15, 20 meters, another Marine. 15, 20 meters, another Marine. And we'd be staggered out in that kind of formation. Normally, I would have been in the back of the squad with the radioman, the corpsman, the lieutenant. Not trying to be a hero or anything like that, simply showing the new men, especially about walking point. Our job is to locate landmines and rounds that have not yet been detonated and to clear the area of those devices. 
We walked that morning without any trouble. We found a couple of rounds. We detonated them. We stopped at noon hour to eat. While I was eating, my friend, my best friend, Lee Gore, asked me if I wanted him to take over his point. Lee could have very easily have done it. He was as well trained as I. But for some reason, I told him I would finish the day, and then on tomorrow, he would walk point. So we picked up where we left off from, and 45 minutes later, I stepped on a 60-pound mine. It blew me several feet into the air. It ripped both of my legs off of my body. I should have been killed instantly. It was a big enough mine to destroy a jeep. We had entered a major minefield. At the very exact moment that I stepped on a mine, a South Korean Marine that was serving with us stepped on a mine, lost one of his legs. Our bulldozer driver set his blade down on a mine. And now there's noise and smoke and chaos and confusion. And I'm in extreme pain. I was only unconscious for a couple of moments. I realized that I had been hit. I didn't know how serious it was. But I looked up in the midst of all the confusion and things that were happening around me. My head was laying in the lap of Corporal Lee Gore. Lee wasn't cussing the president or the communists or the Vietnamese or no one else. But rather with tears streaming down his face openly out loud. He was praying and asking God to help me. And I can remember today as though it happened just a few moments ago. Quang Nam province, a little after 1.30 in the afternoon. That day I prayed. I didn't want to die. I wanted to live. And I prayed a simple prayer, not sure the exact words, but something like this, God, if you'll let me live and get back home to mom and dad. I'll do with my life what you want me to do. Well, I had made so many promises to God on so many other occasions, but I never meant it. Like I meant it that day, they came with a medevac chopper carrying me to the hospital ship, the USS Sanctuary. The second day I was on that ship, two naval doctors basically gave up hope. Infection had set in, running a high degree temperature, a lot of complications. They never expected me to survive. One of those doctors, Dr. Robert Bailey, and I were reunited in Garland, Texas, several years ago, and he told a thousand people that night that they didn't expect me to live because of the seriousness of my wounds. But God had a plan for my life. I lay on the hospital ship for two weeks, unconscious most of the time. They took me to the island of Guam to the Naval Hospital where I spent the next two weeks, unconscious most of that time. I weighed 187 pounds before I was hit. The island of Guam, I weighed a little less than 80 pounds. During that first four-week period, Mom and Dad received visits from the Marines, the Red Cross, and numerous telegrams, and from all that they had been told, they never expected to see their oldest son alive again. But God had a plan for my life. Years ago, Earl Lewis came to hear me in a crusade in Dayton, Ohio. Earl was the fifth man back on the mine sweep that day. He'd only been in country for six weeks. He told Connie and I that it looked like someone had taken a five-gallon bucket of red paint and just poured it all over me. He said not a one of my men thought that I was going to live. In that crusade, Earl gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Pastor Lynn baptized him. They became friends and, and still a faithful member of that 
church today. God had a plan for my life. Years ago, Ray Birchie came to hear me in Danville, Virginia. Ray was the radio man on the mine sweep that day. He told my family, several members of our family were with me in Danville, that when they put me on the medevac chopper to go to the hospital ship, that not a one of my men expected me to be alive by the time we reached the ship, which was only a 20-minute flight. But God had a plan for my life. Four years ago this month in Warren, Ohio, Ray came to hear me a second time. In the second service, he was the first person during the invitation to come, and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. God had a plan for my life. They brought me back to the States, to the Philadelphia Naval Hospital, where I spent the next eight months, eight long months, surgery after surgery after surgery. When the doctors were through and all the surgeries were over, I had three inches remaining on my right leg, 11 inches on my left but no other part of my body was hurt. Now, some would tell us today that, that it was nothing more than an accident. But I remind you, friend, that with God, there are no accidents. God was not asleep on March the 8th, 1971. You see, as a 10-year-old boy, I said yes to Jesus. But as a teenager, I decided that I could live my own life, and I made a choice, a deliberate choice to run. I ran and ran and ran until March the 8th, 1971, when the running was over. I went home from the hospital to my dad's church in southern Illinois. I was the prodigal son come home. I went forward in the church and asked for forgiveness, and of course they forgave me. It was in that church that I met Connie, and we fell in love with each other and were soon married. And it wasn't long after we were married that God called me to preach. Imagine that, a Marine in a wheelchair, no legs. At that time, now this is a long time ago, but at that time I'd never seen anyone on a platform in a church in a wheelchair. I had family and friends who tried to talk me out of it. They said, it's going to be so hard, it's going to be so difficult. But I said, if that's what God wants me to do, that's what I'll do. I pastored for five years in southern Illinois, and now I'm a 45th year as an evangelist. I've had the privilege, as the pastor said, to preach in every state, many, many foreign countries preaching God's Word. And now I'm going to tell you a lot, like I've said it so, so many times, the past 52-plus years of my life have absolutely been the happiest years of my life. He said, but Tim, you're in a wheelchair. Your legs are gone. You told us about your granddaughter, Addie. Yes, but today I'm in the will of God. And that, my friend, makes all of the difference in the world. Here's how the book of Job says that, chapter 5, verse 17. Happy is the man whom God corrected. Wow. Tim, are you telling us that God would do something like that to a person? No. God doesn't necessarily do things to us. He does things for us because He loves us, because He cares for us, and because we are His children. Hey, you're saved today, but you're out of the will of God then I plead with you, I beg you, don't leave the doors of this building until you make it right with God. And there may be several listening to my voice right now, and you have never been saved. 
Your life has never, ever been changed by the power of God. I'm not talking about being a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a Church of Christ or Assembly of God or a Catholic or a Mormon. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being baptized. I'm not talking about living a good, clean, moral life. I'm talking about being saved. You have been absolutely awesome to speak to today. But now, I'm getting ready to say the most important words I will say here today. So I'm going to ask no one to disturb anyone. No one to move unless it's an emergency. If it's an emergency, we understand. But now I'm getting ready to say the most important words, and it may be someone right near you that the Holy Spirit is trying to say something special to today, so don't distract. Here we go. Are you ready? A little over 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son to this earth. God didn't have 20 sons. God didn't have two sons. God had one begotten son, Jesus Christ. He came to this earth born of a virgin, and he lived on this earth for nearly 33 sinless, spotless years. He did no wrong. And then one day, he walked up Calvary's hill, willingly laid down his life for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the whole world. He hangs on a cross suspended between heaven and earth. And on that cross, he sheds his blood. And on that cross, he dies. God's only son died. took him off of that cross and they carried him and they put him in a borrowed tomb. And ladies and gentlemen and young people right here, among other things is what separates Christianity from every single religion on the face of the earth. For if you were to go to the place where they put the body of Jesus, you wouldn't find him. He's not there. On the third day, he got up from the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over hell. And today, God's Son is alive. That's the good news. Now, here is the great news. He wants to come and live in your life. You say, Tim, how does that happen? How does God's Son come and live in my life? You come to this place. And I'm not necessarily talking about the geographical location of Liberty Baptist Church. I, I'm talking about this moment. I'm talking about this time. I'm talking about this place in your life right now. To understand in the sight of this holy God that you're a sinner. The Bible says so. Every one of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. I'm a sinner. Pastor Ryan's a sinner. We've all sinned. Every one of us and come short of God's glory. It's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin that keeps us from having a right relationship with God. 
And it is our sin that would separate us from God for all of eternity in a horrible place called hell. Except for the fact that a price was paid for our sin. God's only son paid for our sin on that cross. And today, if you're willing to repent of your sin, if you're willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, the very moment that you by faith say yes to Jesus, what are you saying yes to? To the cross, to the blood that was shed, to the death that was died, and then to that empty tomb, to a risen Savior. When you by faith Say yes, you accept this gift that God has provided His only Son. When you say yes, He comes to live in your life forever. Wouldn't you like to know that when you die, that you would spend eternity, all of eternity, with God in this awesome place called heaven? He said, well, Tim, I'm not planning on dying anytime soon, and, and I don't imagine any of us are really planning it. But I tell people all the time, you don't have to go to heaven, and you don't have to go to hell, but you can't stay here. You're going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And it all depends upon what you do with Jesus. Today could be the greatest day of your entire life if you would say yes to Jesus. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.